For our series of the ADC's competition talks with leading experts, we have today William Kavasic, the Global Competition Professor of Law and Policy and Director of the Competition Law Center at George Washington University Law School. William Kavasic is also a visiting professor at King's College London and an executive director with the UK Competition and Markets Authority. In the past, Bill was a member of the US Federal Trade Commission, which he shared uh, from March 2008 until March 2009. And Professor Kovacic is also a graduate from Princeton and Columbia Universities. He has published extensively on the topic of competition policy and co-edits the Journal of Antitrust Enforcement. Our guest today has also provided advice on antitrust and consumer protection issues to numerous governments and uh, multilateral agencies and currently serves on the International Committee of the Institute of Competition Law. Um, and Bill, what a pleasure and an honor to be able to do this Comcast with you uh, and to be able to benefit of the rich insights that you have to share with agencies in guiding their choices in the face of the different challenges. Ana Sofia, the pleasure is on my side, and I'm most grateful to you and your colleagues for the wonderful opportunity to participate in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. Now, we do this podcast at a time where the world faces uh, formidable challenges. The pandemic has had and is having a massive impact across most sectors of the economy, our healthcare systems, education, our social lives. And in facing these challenges, governments around the world Uh, have been devising recovery strategies that often hinge on, on massive uh, 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 investments into the economy. The IMF uh, has reported uh, a while ago that uh, relief packages uh, have went over uh, 14 trillion US dollars. Bill, what do you think in this complicated context, what do you think the role of competition agencies should be in the face of these challenges? How do you think agencies should react in terms of focus, priorities, the instruments that are available to them in terms of enforcement to play a part in, 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 in building a resilient recovery? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. And in my, in my, uh, in my life as an academic, uh, one would be tempted to answer this question by saying, uh, I'll think about it for oh, six, seven months, write a paper and get back to you in a year or so. Uh, that's not possible anymore. Uh, the answer has to come now and not through some deliberate process of longer reflection. And certainly a, an experience I had in seeing meet, see theory meet practice in going from the academy to being inside the agencies to understand that you have no luxury of time to sort things out and you have to move very quickly. So, so how, do, how do agencies respond in real time to this? I think, I think one is to, is to do their own diagnosis and assessment of where the problems in the economy are, especially those that are linked to the crisis itself. That is, where, where is the crisis hammering away at the joints of the economy? What problems is it causing? What commercial enterprises is it wiping out? Where is it choking off commerce in ways that will create durable rigidities in the way the economy is operating? Um, what, what damage is it doing to the, to the larger economy of the economy? And an agency is in a good position to monitor this and see this. So one is uh, almost in the way of a physician doing emergency care. Uh, what's wrong with the patient? Uh, what's wrong with this one, this one, bringing to bear the larger experience of how to do medicine, but 
in a way, doing it in the emergency room, but being able to consult with your own expert team of physicians with a laboratory to advise you in real time exactly what the pathology is. So one is doing that, that diagnosis. Uh, a second element is to ask as fast as one can, what cures do I have on hand? What tools do I have? I have law enforcement tools that can be applied, especially to deal with exploitative behavior, uh, behavior that's designed to, to take advantage of the bottleneck simply for the sake of exploiting vulnerability. And that might be my main priority. And in a very public way, to identify that I am looking carefully for that kind of conduct. Because I am, first, in some ways, that's the most uh, grievous harm. But, but more than that, I'm doing it because this is a way that I can indicate to the larger public, to the larger public that there is a public institution that is looking out for them. And eliciting, at the same time, where are your complaints? I want the larger public to know because they are, I want them in the way that a patient would do, tell me what hurts, tell me what's wrong, inform me about what's taking place. Another thing I want to do in quick order is to evaluate that information. And, and this is what I think uh, is, a, is a very favorable trend, a pre-existing capability. And I look at the ADC and Ana Sophia, I look at your own work to look how agencies are coming to understand that the ability to do good data analytics is an important tool in understanding what you're observing. That is, this is, again, to use a healthcare analogy, this is a, a healthcare system that has the ability to do quick laboratory diagnostics in order to understand what the pathology is. Is it spreading? Uh, is it expanding? What are the characteristics of this problem and where do we apply treatments? Uh, so I think part of what this is told agencies is if you don't have that capacity right now, this is not a nice-to-have capability. This is must-have to be able to do this kind of work. And you can't just do it by asking lawyers to go out and play with numbers and to do that kind of work. Uh, as brilliant as lawyers are, as they, they, as they may think themselves to be the smartest people on earth, they're not good at this. Uh, and you need real professionals to do this kind of analytical, analytical work. Um, and I'd use the tools I have, again, to try and address the problems. But a separate channel, a separate dimension is I want to understand as quickly as I can what the government sees as its recovery strategy. I want to have a conversation with policymakers who are developing subsidy programs, are developing public expenditure programs, deciding what public, what services to buy through the procurement channel. I want to have a conversation going with them as fast as I can to say, I am a willing partner in what you're trying to do. I am not just going to be a red traffic light robot telling you no, but I want to assist you in the flow of traffic and in the flow of commerce. I want to help you with that. I can do a good job and to develop their trust so that they see me as a partner. Now, I, I know that part of their, rec their, their view is, we, we have a crisis now. We cannot stand around and chat and simply think about what to do while the house is burning down. This is the fire department. Let's not think about the theory of fire suppression and control. We have to act now. And I'd say, I understand that, but I'm willing to get on the truck with you and go to the fire. And while we're going there, I have some ideas about fire control. I have some ideas about how to put out the fire. 
and I want to be able to apply that in real time. So part of it's a, a part of what's important is to have the conversation that builds trust in a hurry with government departments that are doing this work and to say, I've got some other ideas. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I want to understand what you're doing, but I want to give you a menu of options, sort of in a way that a op ophthalmologist, when you go to get lenses fit, will show you the lens and say, does it look better this way or this way? I want to show you the different lenses to make sure your vision is better. I can help with that. So, Bill, let me see if I can summarize uh, the, the recipe that you have just gave us. A timely response, and this is very important because we're in an emergency room. Listen to the patient in the emergency room. If I may add, certainly uh, look for advice of uh, uh, highly experienced experts such as yourself. Uh, but there was one point, a very important point that you mentioned, uh, which is reach, reaching out to policymakers. And that brings me to the second question. What, what would you highlight as the key ingredients of an effective advocacy strategy for competition uh, agencies? And what do you think are the main messages? What are, do you think are the main issues that we should ensure governments take into account in devising their intervention? Uh, I would start as a starting point. Uh, I would say empathy. That is in making the approach to the other government policymaker to do the best that I suspect we try to do in understanding individual human beings, but to understand institutions is what are the motivations? What guides them? What pressures do they face? What's their mandate? How do they define their own role in coming up with policy? Um, when I was a much younger person, uh, uh, at a much earlier time in a competition agency for the first time 40 years ago, When we were doing advocacy, uh, I think we had a tendency to show up at other government agencies and say, the competition agency professionals are here. And you regulators or other policymakers of decidedly inferior intelligence uh, now have the opportunity to be enlightened with what we have to tell you. So we will now speak truth to you. And why don't you sit back and listen? As you might imagine, they did not receive that message too positively. Uh, that was not wise. So I think, I think a, a crucial element of building trust and confidence is to show that you understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's not to say what they're doing is ideal or even wise, but to understand why and to understand what they're doing. So start one, empathy. Two, is in pursuing the conversation to bring your knowledge to bear based on actual experience and your concrete knowledge of industry sectors and commercial phenomena. I don't think the policymakers are going to respond well uh, with simply saying, if we told you the competition is good, we're going to write that on the board for you. And if you start to doubt, we'll come back to the first lesson. Competition is good and you should take it into account. Uh, again, my reaction as another government policymaker might be to say, if you have any other cliches or slogans for me, I, I'd be delighted to hear them. Why don't you put them on a T-shirt or a coffee mug and just leave them outside my office here and I'll pick them up later. I think what they want to know is how in this setting, in this sector or with respect to this problem, how competition can make things better. I think the credibility of the competition authority soars where you can back it up with data, 
where you can back it up with qualitative knowledge derived from your earlier work. Uh, if I had to point to areas where I think advocacy has had the biggest impact, it is where the other public authority has confidence that the agency knows what it's talking about and does it from a base of knowledge and experience where it says uh, to a telecom regulator, we've studied the evolution of telecom services. We think these were some key junctures. We understand what's going on. Uh, where, where the agency becomes trusted because it's done its homework and it has real tangible experience to bring to bear. So advocacy based on deep knowledge. Um, uh, the third ingredient is to have a sense of what trade-offs might be made, to offer a menu uh, at, the, at the policy restaurant, to go up to the table as a server and to say, here's what's on the menu. But I want you to know that you have choices. Uh, you might have been thinking of just ordering this item, but I want to tell you what else is on the menu. And if you trust me, I'll tell you what's good. I want to tell you what I think is good what goes well with that dish. But I want to give you, I want to make you aware of the menu so that you're not just focused on ordering one thing you might be conditioned to get. Maybe you'll ultimately go to it, but let me show you what the menu is. And for competition law, what's on the menu are options, some of which have a greater possibility for preserving competition. That's to say, and at some point, I, I think if this conversation is going well, with the person at the table, they say, uh, Anna Sophia, tell me what's good. What's good today? Um, I said, glad you asked. Here are my thoughts about what's good. This is what I would consider if I were dining here myself. Uh, this is what I might order. So that, and they say, well, why? And that's again where I'm ready to bring in my base of knowledge and say, this is why this dish is good for you, why you might like it. But again, not with a tone that, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what good food is, but I've got a menu. I have some ideas about what works. I want to give you options. Very well, uh, uh, Bill. That is a that is a, a good recipe again, um, and a good menu. Uh, now, um, but what are the key questions we should uh, uh, get? In, so we have a policy. The the government is is thinking of a policy. We get a, a knowledge of this policy. What kind of issues should we ensure that they take into account competition-wise? Well, suppose we're going to spend money on a subsidy program. I want to start by an abstraction that I'm ready to back up with examples. And the abstraction is in spending the money, and I realize you have to spend it fast, in spending the money, you are creating conditions that will determine how much rivalry we have in the economy in the future. And I'm not suggesting that any human being could do that perfectly right now. That's perfectly unattainable. So I realize we're in a, a world of making some rough judgments. But you have the ability to shape a better future by preserving more independent centers of commercial activity or inventive activity. So... Think broadly about who might be the recipients of these funds. And don't necessarily only think of incumbents that are doing exactly what you want now. Uh, somebody somewhere out there, somewhere out there in Lisbon right now, is someone you don't even know about who's got a really good idea. And in thinking about how to frame your program, 
frame it in a way that gives that voice or that person a chance to show off what they can do and do it. So, so in spending the money, don't simply think of channeling it exclusively to people who have it, especially large incumbents. Can you design the program in a way that creates permeability for other enterprises and other businesses? Because the way you spend it right now might shape your policy choices for the next half century. So let's spend it in a way that preserves options and create options. That might be my main message. If they say why, then I come forward with my historical examples about where the idea that could change the way the sector operates is coming from a direction you can never anticipate. And it might be from a source that you don't have in mind right now, but will make a big difference for you. And to the extent that you can main, preserve that permeability, the openness to other solutions, it's worth the effort to do it, even though you have to do things fast. Indeed, Bill. And 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 I think there's uh, experiences from the past to enlighten us. Uh, what do you think are the main lessons learned from the past uh, that, are, that are illustrative and that can be part of the advocacy of uh, the importance of competition uh, for industrial policy, for growth, uh, uh, and for welfare? I like to take examples of products or services that people are aware of, that they use all the time, and ask them, do you know where that came from? Do you know how that happened? Uh, one of my favorite examples is the uh, is a smartphone or the electronic devices that fill up our bags that we carry with us uh, as though they were the source of life itself. I think we all know how the one thing you cannot take away from a human being is their phone. Uh, if they can't find the phone, there's a level of panic as though they've been infected with a deadly disease that will kill them in 10 seconds if they don't find it. So I like to use something they know. And, and the smartphone's a good idea uh, example. The, the smartphone, uh, in so many ways, is the descendant of conscious choices that government agencies made or competition agencies made to create conditions in which competition for equipment could flourish and to say that was the result of deliberate government choices that gave us this. Because what's in this little box used to be several devices. Uh, this little box has a computing power that used to be produced in machines that covered the, 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 the floor of a big office building. Uh, uh, a camera that could take 36 shots on a single roll of film and now thousands of exposures with a card um, and a telecommunications device that couldn't be imagined. It fits in your pocket now. Competition did that. Uh, another example that's been crucial to trade and globalization is the development of containerized shipping. Uh, a number of people had ideas, 1930s, 1940s, about putting things in boxes and moving the boxes instead of individual bags. But one of the formative figures is a guy named Malcolm McLean. Uh, he's, he's a truck driver. He has a company and he owns two trucks. He hasn't finished high school. He knows about driving trucks and something about taking things on trucks and taking them off trucks. He knows about that. He's sitting in a large queue. He's from North, the state of North Carolina. He's sitting in a large queue up in the port of New York waiting for his truck to be unloaded. And he's watching the unloading of trucks on the ships. One bag, one bag, one bag, one bag. He says, wouldn't it be better if you put it all in a box and sent it to the destination of the box and then took it off? He said, you know, you could put the box on a truck 
or maybe on a train car. How about that? You'd move many more things much more quickly. Um, he's the one who thought as much as anyone else about what containerization could do. He didn't have a MBA from, uh, from Harvard, from IESE, from LSE, didn't. He had the MBA from experience and intuition, and he had to overcome a number of regulatory barriers to make this vision work. But a crucial element in dismantling the regulatory barriers was competition advocacy that said, this can make citizens far wealthier, can increase prosperity, open up entirely new markets if we do it this way, and persuaded transportation regulators to give this a chance and to let it flourish. So I like to point to things where the big idea came from places you might not have immediately imagined, but it involved the application of the basic intuition that you want markets and commerce to be permeable. You want good ideas to get a chance, including ideas that challenge our existing ways of thinking about how things must be done. And if someone says, well, what's going to come of the competition? The honest answer is, we don't know. But what we do know is that what can come from it can surprise us in ways that are just wonderful and unimaginable. And the talent and skill to do them is out there. It's got to get a chance to realize its fullest expression. But I like to try to tell the story by saying, Here's something you know about. Here's something you use all the time. Here's something you like. Let's think about how it got there. And let's do it again. Well, certainly creating the space for those innovations and that idea, uh, those ideas is crucial and competition is, 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 is a core element for that. Uh, and what better example than, than we had a, just maybe a month ago that the, the, the container ship got stuck at the Suez Canal and, yes. and the impact that had. So that illustrates very well the impact of that idea that you have just mentioned. Now, uh, it makes me think it was probably a law professor who was the pilot sort of being an amateur on the ship. But <laughs> maybe that was not true. <laughs> Well, Bill, to wrap up uh, all these uh, important insights that you that you uh, just uh, uh, share with us, um, uh, you've described uh, sometimes uh, the challenges that are posed to competition agencies in current times as a stress test. Now, I would like to discuss or to listen to you uh, for um, uh, uh, to wrap up. What do you think the long long term effects? of all these reactions of competition agencies is going to be? Do you think that we are going to unleash further the potential of competition advocacy in shaping industrial policy and in contributing uh, to the wider policy agenda? I think competition agencies come out of this ghastly experience better and wiser about how to use their policy uh, tools. One thing I think they learn and try to continue is Engagement with the larger policy environment is important to what they do. And having a regular conversation relationship with ministries, with legislators, is not something to be avoided, but it's something to be welcomed. That, yes, there are things that competition agencies do. There are decisions they take where they have to remind elected officials for the sake of legitimacy 
this is a decision within our domain. We will be accountable for it, but it's our choice. But we have a vital stake in shaping the larger policy environment in which competition takes place and in which economic progress unfolds. And we want to be your partners. We want to be a resource for you in making that happen. And one thing I hope and expect is that one thing that persists that's good is that continuing relationship so that policymakers, in, instead of saying, here is the irritating competition agency that's just going to come and chirp in my ear, competition is good, competition is good, here is a valuable source of knowledge and guidance that can help me do this job better than I do now, and that the requests will come from demand. It will be a demand-driven consultation, not simply supply showing up and saying, listen to me. Demand will ask for it. I think that's one. Uh, second, I think that agencies have learned about how to do that better by building the advocacy on understanding empathy about what the other policymakers are doing, but then saying, let me bring my knowledge about what competition can do to bear on solving your problem. And let me give you a menu of options to choose from that is richer more attractive than singing about the single strategy that you might have had in mind as the default and picking all the time. Um, and let me work with you to evaluate outcomes. That is, did it work? How do you do it better the next time? Uh, our agencies have some insights about that. We're willing to help with that part of it too. I think another outcome of this is the experimentation with new procedures that are faster and perhaps can give the great benefit of a more speedy and adaptable resolution to problems than we'd thought of before. The importance of giving more advice to business decision makers, uh, the importance of perhaps providing more information to the public and to these government decision makers by releasing more information about what we know, what we've observed and the way the economy is taking place, to offering better tailored guidance to firms. Uh, notice in how many instances we've learned how to give advice quickly. I think it's been pretty good advice. It's been pretty reliable advice. And to step back and think, this is something we used to think you couldn't do in less than six months, but we did it in a week. Uh, can we do that again? Uh, without damaging the quality of the analysis that we're doing, making a better trade-off between speed and quality uh, in some instances. I think another thing that we've learned is, um, we've touched upon this before, the benefit of collaboration. But I think the real benefit of a deeper collaboration within the competition policy community, um, if we use the healthcare analogy again, uh, in a sense, our competition agencies are individual healthcare providers in individual hospitals. Um, my One of my co-authors, who happens to be an actual doctor as well as a lawyer, tells me that great advances in medicine have taken place because you pool experience. Uh, that is, the cardiology department in the first hospital talks to the cardiology departments in other hospitals. So that when you're doing diagnosis, when you're doing operating theater technique, when you're doing post-operative care, you're pooling the knowledge that comes from all of these observations, not just your own. And the result is that you learn a lot more about medicine, about how doing everything, about observing what's actually afflicting the patient and how to treat it better because you have broad experimentation and you're assembling the knowledge. 
I hope and I think one thing that's going to persist is that agencies learned in the face of the crisis, almost crying out out of desperate need. What are you doing? How are you doing this? What's working? I think agencies came to trust each other more because they learned that because they spoke more and they've come away from it. I hope and think thinking they learned a lot. This is worth doing. Uh, cooperation isn't something I have to do because the mission statement of my agency says I do it, but it's something I want to do because they have something to tell me. And part of what we've seen is that you don't have to wait until a meeting of a large international organization or a regular multinational meeting to assemble in one place to do it. You can do it right here. Now, I look forward to the day when we can have those other meetings. But what we've learned is that you can do this all the time. And you can assemble a number of people quickly to have a virtual meeting and say, what do we do here? You can do that really quickly, very profitably. You can build much better networks and cooperate. I think we've all learned that in a way that we never would have understood, except that we had to do it this way. And learning what we had to do I think we've learned things that we might want to do more of and do profitably in the future. I, I think these are all these are all good things that have come from the calamity. Well, certainly, let's hope that uh, for the greater good, uh, we have more competition embedded into into the choices uh, with our advocacy efforts, uh, uh, um, with willingness uh, from 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 uh, decision makers and policy decision makers. Uh, on competition, because at the end we are we are just proposing solutions that are pursuing the objectives that they want, but less restrictive of competition. Bill. And, I, and I finish, and I think of one other oh. thing that I, I mm -hmm. left on my list on the last point, which is, I think we've realized how the ability to accelerate the analysis of data and experience is extremely valuable. That that each of our agencies has an accumulated body of experience. How do you bring that to bear on this problem? Uh, and how do you gather information in a way that's fast and informative? And I think we've realized you need real professionals to do this. And if you have a good data team, if you, you can use artificial intelligence is not simply a tool for the private sure. sector mm -hmm. to create new cool stuff. Uh, it's a tool for us to do our jobs better. I think that's an enduring lesson too. And very important lessons. Thank you for sharing all these uh, wonderful insights, Bill. It was it was a pleasure to do this podcast with you. Pleasure on my side, Anna Sophia. Thank you for the opportunity to to join you. Thank you, Bill.